Today's episode of Raising Adults is brought to you by the Homeschool Buyers Co-op, which is the largest buyers club for homeschoolers in the country. It's run by homeschoolers who have a love for family and a deep commitment to homeschooling. And what the Homeschool Buyers Co-op does is give families the purchasing power of school districts, which means that you get 10 to 90% off of curriculum. Plus, registration is free, and they have a ton of free resources available as well. They also have a Smart Points reward system, so the more you buy, the more you earn. And if you register for your free account with our referral code, which is ADULTS, A-D-U-L-T-S, you will get 5,000 Smart Points right away, which basically gives you $5 to spend on the site immediately. So register for your free account today and use our referral code, ADULTS, by going to homeschoolbuyersco-op.org. That's homeschoolbuyersco-op.org. Hello, FFPs, and welcome to our two-week break between seasons. Today is the first of two episodes that we're replaying that were popular in past seasons. And the episode we're sharing with you today is our episode on emotional intelligence. It was incredibly popular when it aired, but we thought it could be a really helpful refresher for those of you who parent this way already, but maybe some great new groundbreaking information for those of you who haven't heard it. So we hope that you enjoy the episode and we look forward to being back with you again with all new episodes in season four on July 20th. What happens when two parent coaches, one a Christian and the other an agnostic Jew, sit down to talk about parenting? They take their listeners from surviving to thriving. I'm Dina Thayer. And I'm Kira Dorian. Welcome to Raising Adults, a podcast brought to you by Future Focused Parenting. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. This is an area where Kira just has a wealth of knowledge and expertise. So I'm going to primarily be turning it over to her today to just share her wealth of resources and knowledge with all of you. I think you'll all benefit from it. And I'm sure I'm even going to learn a thing or two. And I'm going to just share a little bit about my why around this, because this was important to me as well. But then I want to really give Kira the bulk of that time. So for me, two things were important with emotional intelligence. One, that ability to name feelings. I have an undergraduate degree in speech. And so for me, words are really critical. And I never want my children to be at a literal loss for words. Figurative loss for words, it's going to happen in life. But a literal loss for words was important for me to avoid. I wanted them to have the words to articulate what they're feeling and how they're coping with different situations. So that was one thing that was really important to me. And the second was this idea that neither heart nor head should be more important than the other. And it's really easy as a rational or analytical person, which I am, I lean toward being more type A, to kind of lean more toward head heavy, I guess you could say. And I wanted to make sure heart was emphasized in our home. And David Caruso, who is an actor I used to just love, I love, he has this quote that says, it's very important to recognize that emotional intelligence is not the triumph of of heart over head. It's the unique intersection of both. Mm -hmm. And that was really important for me with my kids. So Kira, tell us your why. And then I'm excited to hear all that you have to share on this important topic. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to cover. Um, and so my why was, I mean, there's so many whys really with this. But I guess the ultimate why for me is I have always believed, certainly since I've been a mental health professional, that emotional intelligence is the key to happiness. 
If we can understand our feelings, if we can understand why we're feeling what we're feeling, if we can recognize what's triggering that feeling and we can process it in a healthy way, we are going to live a happy life. Um, I think that where we see people go to drugs or alcohol is when they don't have the healthy coping mechanism for the feelings or the feelings are so big and so overwhelming that they don't know how to unpack them. So for me, raising our children was was really about how do I give them this foundation around their feelings and also the empathy and understanding of what's happening for other people so that they're not taking on responsibility for what they're not responsible for. Someone else's feelings and behavior may be a result of mine, but sometimes it's not. And so helping them pull apart what am I responsible for, what am I not responsible for, again, a key to a happy existence. That's really important. Yeah. So I want to start by talking about what the definition of emotional intelligence is, um, because it is it is a relatively new concept in that it's really come to the foreground recently. I mean, my kids are seven, and I would say that um, my generation of parents are some of the first that are really c- consistently noticing how important this is. That's not to say that other generations didn't parent this way. My parents parented this way, but I don't think they necessarily understood what they were doing. Um, so the definition of emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. So that's the definition. So there's a couple different parts to this. Um, And the first one for me is how do we teach our kids to notice and name and process their own feelings, which is what you were talking about. Um, And so the first thing I think parents really need to do is, is create a perspective change on what they're seeing when their children are having big feelings. We tend to lump the feelings and the behavior together. My toddler's having a meltdown, and that's unacceptable. Instead of pulling apart, my toddler's having a meltdown. The feelings are valid. The behavior is unacceptable. And once we can start to pull those things apart, we can help our children process the feelings and change the behavior. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a theory um, that I've come up with called the three N's around emotional intelligence and feelings. So the first N is to name or notice the feeling. The second is to normalize the feeling. And the third is to nurture the feeling. So let's start breaking that down. So first and foremost, your child is upset about something and they are expressing their feelings. And whether they're expressing it in a good way or a bad way, let's put that to the side for a moment. They're having big feelings. And you as an adult can probably recognize what those feelings are. You said no to the second helping of cheesecake. Uh, You said no to painting the wall with poop, right? (laughs) You've put a boundary up. Usually that's where they experience those big feelings and they don't like it. So typical feelings around that might be frustration, anger, or sadness. Those are the predominant ones, sometimes disappointment as well. So the first thing is when you see your child experiencing a big feeling, if they are young enough that they don't have the words yet, you have to give it to them. You have to teach them to name those feelings. So you might say, I can see you're feeling really frustrated, or I can see you're feeling really angry. If you're not sure, you can offer a might. You know, it looks like you might be feeling frustrated, right? Because sometimes we don't want to tell them how they feel if we aren't sure what we're seeing because that's not very validating for them. 
Once you've helped them name it, then you want to normalize it. Now, you can either normalize or validate, and those are nuanced differences. So validating is probably the most important. The feeling is always okay. Everybody's entitled to their feelings. What we do with our feelings is where it becomes yes. acceptable, not acceptable. So we want to validate. So whatever that is, I can see you're feeling frustrated that I said no to cheesecake. I understand it's really frustrating when we feel like we can't have what we want, right? Because that's true. We've all felt that way. Adults have felt that way. For sure. Where the normalizing can come in is um, sometimes I will share my own experience with my children so that they realize they're not the only person who's ever felt this way. Because sometimes, especially around depression, um, one of the really tricky parts of depression is that oftentimes people feel like they're really the only one who's ever experienced this. They feel very, very alone. Now, in children, that's not so extreme, but we want to set up this concept that, hey, what you're going through is normal. Right. You're not experiencing this feeling in isolation as right. an island. No one else has ever dealt with it. Right. And because children are inherently narcissistic until around the age of seven, eight, nine. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Narcissistic in this context means they're self-focused. So oftentimes they blame themselves where they don't need to. That's where the narcissism comes in. So when I think to myself, I'm the only one who's ever felt this way, kids often jump to that makes me a bad person because no one else has ever felt this way. So helping them normalize what they're experiencing removes some of that pressure. It's like, hey, mom's felt this way. So a great example is when I have to dole out a consequence to one of my kids and they're feeling really upset about it. Again, it's totally normal for them to be upset that I've doled out a consequence. That's absolutely normal. And I want to validate that. I know that you're really frustrated that you're not getting your show privilege this afternoon. You know, I remember when I was a kid, there was a time where Poppy, that's what they call my dad, where Poppy had to take away one of my privileges because of a choice that I made. And I was so angry. And what you're doing there is, again, sending this message. You're not a terrible person because you made a bad choice. You're not a terrible person because I have to dole out a consequence. This happens in life. And I think I've said in other episodes, I often say to my kids, you can't get through life without fill in the blank. So when I'm doling out consequences or they're feeling frustrated or they're embarrassed or any of their big hard feelings, I will often say, you know, sweetheart, you can't get through life without getting in trouble. Everyone gets in trouble sometimes. Or you can't get through life without, you know, feeling embarrassed. Everyone feels embarrassed. So normalizing is really key to diffusing the situation a little bit. So you name it, you normalize it, and then you have to nurture it. A really good example of where parents can sometimes fail these first two steps of naming and normalizing is when I see a parent at the playground, for example, their kid falls down and they say, you're okay. Now, this comes from a great place of love, right? They want their child to know that the, their body's okay. Um, they don't want their kid to freak out about something that doesn't need to be freaked out about. And that's great. The problem is that when we do that, we're actually dismissing whatever the child might actually be feeling. If the child is crying, they're not okay. Now, their body might be okay, but that doesn't mean that they didn't get scared. It didn't mean that their heart didn't start racing and that feels kind of funny. It doesn't mean that they're not emotionally okay. So I much prefer when parents say, are you okay? This is helping the child learn to figure out what's going on for them. So if the child continues to cry and says, no, I'm not okay, but it's clear to the parent that they're physically fine, the parent can then say, well, can you wiggle your fingers? Can you hear me say I love you? Can you see my silly face? Right? And you make a silly face. And this is helping the child do a body check to start to discover on their own, oh, I am physically okay. Okay. 
once it's clear that their body is okay, you can say, well, it looks like your body's okay. Did your heart get scared? Because sometimes I'll say that to my kids, like, it seems to me like your heart got scared. Um, And that's acknowledging that it's not just a physical okay, there's a mental okay too. And then you could normalize it. You know what, sweetheart, that makes sense. It's scary when you fall down. Your heart starts racing and you lose your balance. That's normal, right? So that's a way to name and normalize the feeling instead of dismissing the child's feeling by simply saying, you're okay. And the child's kind of left thinking, am I? I don't really feel okay, and maybe not given a chance to actually process that fully. Okay, so the third N is nurture. And what that really means is you as the parent are going to help them process what they're feeling, because that's our job. And that is the key to emotional intelligence. We got to name it, we got to normalize it, but then we also have to give our kids the skills to process it. Um, So there's a couple different ways to come about this, and it's really going to be about you reading your kid and seeing where you're at. Are they having a big feeling that's temporary that you can tell is just based on this situation? Or are they having a bigger feeling that this situation triggered? Um, And that is going to just take some time to get used to figuring out within your kid, because oftentimes... We do this as adults, too. I'm super guilty of this. But kids especially will often throw down about a small thing, but they're actually upset about this big thing that happened that didn't get dealt with. And so you as the parent have to recognize, okay, what happened here? So I'll give you a really good example. Um, My son had a really scary um, experience about a year ago, and he was like, ambulance to the ER and he had a blood draw. I mean, it was super scary. I was scared. He saw that I was scared. It was a really hard experience. And about a week after that, he had a total meltdown at like seven o'clock in the morning over this seemingly very small thing. And pretty quickly, I figured out that he was using this small thing as a safe place to process everything he had felt the week before. And so once my husband and I kind of clocked, this is not about this tiny little thing. This is about what just happened a week ago. Then we had to come at it a little differently. So let's start with that. Let's start with your child's having a big response that you think actually doesn't require a quick calm down or a quick coping mechanism, actually requires processing feelings. Because helping your children process their feelings is possibly the most important part of everything I'm going to say today. So once you realize that that's happening, unfortunately, that becomes your priority. Everything else goes out the window and you have to stop and you have to be with their feelings. So we talk a lot in our family about feeling our feelings. So sometimes my kids, if I miss it, if I think that it's a small thing that I can just quickly help them cope with and it's not, they will sometimes say back to me, mommy, I just need to feel my feelings right now. And that's a cue to me that I just got to like sit there and let them do that. So feeling feelings can look like crying. It can look like screaming. It can look like stomping feet. Um, It can look like all those things. And sometimes as parents, being present for that is how you send the message to your children that that those feelings are acceptable. And so where you want to set boundaries are around what is not acceptable. So when a child is feeling their feelings, it is not acceptable for them to hurt you. It's not acceptable for them to hurt themselves, and it's not acceptable for them to break anything. Those are the three main rules. So they may cry, especially crying, laughing, um, shaking. There's some really interesting research around the various ways that we release feelings. Um, And there's a great website called handinhandparenting.com that talk a lot about 
once a child fully processes feelings, the trauma's over and they actually move forward without any residual trauma. But if we cut it off too soon, it can linger and show up in other ways. So for my son, as an example, he's usually a crier and he will just cry and I'll hold him and be with him. And sometimes he'll push me away and that's okay as long as he's using gentle touch. But I'm just there with him, letting him know it's clear to me you need to feel some feelings. I'm right here. I'm happy to hug you. I'm happy to not hug you. And just letting him get it out of his body, right? Until he gets to a point where I can then help him start to calm down. But if you try and calm it down a child too quickly, you're not giving them the room to feel those feelings. So then you're either going to feel all these feelings. And for some parents, that's very uncomfortable, especially if you were not given the permission to do that as a child. It can be a real red rag to you as an individual. And it's really interesting how our brains work. A lot of times people who feel like I didn't get to do that, it's very hard for them to let their children do it because it makes them remember what they didn't get. And so be aware of that yourselves as parents. Like if that's hard on you, maybe the other parent shows up, right? Maybe you have to go to a happy place in your head. I mean, I do that sometimes. I'm right there with my son or my daughter, but I'm in a happy place in my head because honestly, it's uncomfortable to be there with them. But what's amazing is when they come through that to the other side and they're ready for calm down uh, activities and coping mechanisms, which I'm going to get to in a second, they really move forward. They have processed whatever was going on for them, and they have learned my feelings are valid and mommy's willing to be with me even when my feelings are big and hard. Now, let's talk about healthy, calming, and coping mechanisms because sometimes the behavior is not going to be okay, and that's really important. Is it okay for my son to have a meltdown in his bedroom privately where he's not hurting me himself or breaking anything? Yes. Is it acceptable for him to have a meltdown in the grocery store where he's throwing things? No, absolutely not. And I think where people get confused around emotional intelligence is thinking they have to allow that in order for the kid to feel their feelings. And that is absolutely right. not the case, right? We do not want a whole bunch of children that are raised to just feel feelings anytime they want, everywhere Meaning they it go. Can manifest however with behavior right. that might be really not fine. Exactly. And that comes back to the boundaries that we talk about. Setting a boundary and then within that boundary the feelings are really okay. So an example might be that um, your child, you're in a grocery store. I love this, the grocery store example because I think this does happen to parents. And the child starts to melt down because you won't get them the Cocoa Puffs. And again, it's okay to acknowledge, I can see you're super frustrated that I won't get you the Cocoa Puffs. I get it. I understand. I remember feeling that way as a kid, too. But your behavior right now is not acceptable. So we need to find another way for you to express that feeling to me. And then you want to give options. You may tell me that you're frustrated in a frustrated voice, right, allowing them to release that tension. Uh, you may take some deep breaths to start to calm down. Um, or you may squeeze your fist very, very, very tight and then release them. And that can be a really good releasing exercise as well. So give them some choices. Here are some acceptable ways to express your feelings. If you have a very small child or even an older child and they can't do that, then you want to set up this expectation that if you can't cope with your feelings in an acceptable way right now, we are going to have to leave. And then you have to be willing to abandon the cart of groceries, which is really hard. Yes. But future focused, yep. you have to be willing to do that sometimes, then you can get to the car where maybe now we're in a safe space for them to really melt down and feel their feelings. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I've left a couple carts of groceries <laughs> in my time. It's not fun, but right. it sometimes needs to be done. Now let's talk really quickly about some calm down 
activities, calm down things that a parent can help their child do once they've felt their feeling to begin to relax their body, relax their mind and and release that feeling, right? So we've let them say, I'm frustrated in their frustrated voice, but now we have to help them calm down. One of my favorite calm down things is singing, especially for younger kids. Singing is so effective for a couple different reasons. The first one is that when we sing, it forces us to breathe. We have to take breaths in between each line. And so it allows our brain to get oxygenated and our heart rate to start to slow down and we start to feel better. The other thing that happens when we sing is we have to think about what the words are, which means that our brain is going to be focused on that instead of focused on the initial thing that we were experiencing. Now, that's a distraction, and we don't want that to be for forever, but sometimes just that gentle perspective shift can help us start to physically calm down. The other great thing about singing is it releases endorphins, and those make us feel good. So singing's awesome. Also really good for kids who are having panic attacks, again, for all those same reasons, but especially because it helps them breathe. Um, And then if singing doesn't feel good or the kid doesn't want to sing, another option for calming down is to notice things around them. So what can you see? Tell me five things you can see. Tell me three things you can hear. Tell me four things you can smell. Um, And what this does is bring the child back into their body. Oftentimes when kids are really spiraling, they're so out of themselves um, that that's partly what's going on is that it's a scary feeling to be kind of out of body. So doing this helps trigger all their senses, brings them right back into their body. So that's a good calm down activity. Um, Some kids also have a calm drawer. We definitely have them at our house where if you feel like they just need to go off into their room and handle this themselves, which I will say some kids really do. We actually have one kid, my son really needs presents, and my daughter actually does a lot better when she calms herself down. Um, So she has a calm down drawer in her room, and it just has different activities like sticker books and coloring and silly putty for her to kind of fiddle with with her hands to release tension. Um, Just different things in that drawer that she picked out that help her to calm down. So having a calm down drawer is a really good option as well. So those are just three examples of things that you can give your kids to begin to release the feelings that they have expressed to you. Um, And so, again, you can't necessarily do any of those in the grocery store, but you can allow them to express their feelings in the grocery store. And then when you get out to the car, you can begin to help them to calm down. And then the other piece of this is, unfortunately, and this is harder with younger kids, but as your kids get older, like mine are almost seven, you're going to reach a point where they want to feel their feelings, especially if you have raised them to feel their feelings, where they're going to want to feel their feelings. And actually, you don't have time for them to do that right now. I was actually going to ask about that because you said that's when everything else has to stop. It's time to just engage with that and be present with them. And I wanted to ask, there may actually come a time when, for whatever reason, it can't happen right then. So what do you do? Right. So we've had that where like a dinner guest was coming and one of our kids just fell to pieces over something. And again, you have to look at the situation. So if that had happened with my son and his ambulance thing, and it had been clear to me, this is a big meltdown about something big, I probably wouldn't have shut it down. I probably would have said to my husband, we need to go deal with this. This is actually more important than our dinner guest. But that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare that it's going to be something that big. So what we do is we say, your feelings are totally valid. I really want to discuss them with you and I want to hear what's going on, but right now is not the appropriate time. So we need to tuck those feelings away and we can pull them out at bedtime. And I always give them the time that we're going to pull it out. And so we do a little exercise called the feelings box. 
where, you know, I do hypnotherapy. So I have them close their eyes and picture a box. And I say, what color is the box? What's on the box? Okay, great. And I have them kind of imagine it. I say, can you open the box? And I want you to just put in that box all those big feelings you're feeling right now. And just imagine putting them in there and tucking them in safely. And I want you to let all those feelings know that we really want to hear about them and that they're super important to us. But we just can't look at them right now. So let them know that at bedtime, we're going to open this box and we're going to pull out all those feelings and engage with them and make sure that we get a chance to process them. And then I'll usually have them close the box, but not completely. So it's just open a little bit and tuck it away. And usually that exercise is enough to calm them down. It sends the message that there are boundaries around when we can fully express ourselves. But it also sends the message that I still want you to fully express yourself. This just isn't the time or the place. I love that. That's really great. Now, what do you think? I know you're not there yet experientially, but just in your knowledge around it as a mental health professional and those kinds of things, how do you take something like this and translate it to an older child who isn't going to maybe sit in your lap and cry or doesn't want to imagine a box and put their feelings in it? What kind of things would you maybe do with older ones? Well, I think that part of it is implementing it young because as they develop those skills, then yeah, they're not going to want the feelings box. You know, a 16-year-old, you're not going to be like, okay, picture your feelings box. But when you say, hey, this is not an appropriate time for us to engage with this, but I really want to talk about it at bedtime, they're going to have the cognitive ability and the sense memory in their body of what it feels like to tuck it away and pull it out later. And I will also say that a lot of the time, if it's not a big, big, big thing, when they really are just melting down about this small thing, um, at bedtime, I'll say, let's open up the box. And oftentimes my kids will say, you know, I think I'm okay. And they actually don't need to process it. They just needed to know that they could. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of depends. And it is it is rather nuanced. And what about families who maybe didn't start this young and are coming at this and hearing this and going, this is such a great idea. I feel really behind the eight ball here. What could I do? Are there a couple things I could implement now that would still be at least helpful? Yeah, I think the key is to validate, 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 to switch the way that you communicate about feelings. A lot of parents say things like, don't be scared. There's nothing to be scared of. Okay, except I'm feeling scared. So just honoring it. Yeah, I can tell you're feeling really scared. And let me show you why it's not scary or why it's safe. You know what I mean? But when we when we dismiss children's feelings, no matter what age they are, they don't like it. And especially teenagers, I would imagine. So validating, validating, validating. Yep, it is super frustrating that I will not let you take the car. That stinks. I totally understand. I remember feeling that way when I was 16 and my dad wouldn't let me take the car. I was so mad. But now I'm the grown up and I'm like, oh, well, that's what I need to do. Right. You know, so just really like normalizing that for them, that what they're feeling is OK. And then the more that you create space for tell me about it, I'd like to hear more about that. I would think that the more they're going to open up because the more they see that I can express feelings and it's safe for me to do so. The key is not to shut it down. I think a lot of parents try and shut it down because it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to watch your child have big feelings. So not to shut it down um, and to give space no matter what the age is. So that could be a really big switch. The next part of this that I want to talk about, because I've talked now a lot about um, how to teach children about their own feelings and emotions. The second part of emotional intelligence is understanding the way other people are behaving and having empathy and compassion for them. So the first step is empathy, 
true empathy, understanding that we're all human, we all fuck up, we all make mistakes, and we're all trying to work on something. So in our home, we do a lot of looking at whatever they bring home, like so-and-so was really mean at school today huh, that must have been really frustrating or that must have really hurt your feelings. So first and foremost, validating their experience. Not dismissing with, oh, so-and-so's so nice. Uh-huh, okay. But their experience was that so-and-so was unkind today. That must have been really hard. And then secondly, looking at, well, what was going on for so-and-so today? Was there anything out of the ordinary for them? Or, you know, kind of trying to figure out where are the poor choices coming from because they are always coming from something legitimate. So a great example is how we talk about bad guys in our house. As soon as my son was old enough to engage with any superhero anything, we had to start talking about bad guys. And in our household, there are no bad guys. There are people who were misguided or didn't get enough love when they were kids. Because in my opinion, that's what bad guys are. Unless there's a real mental health issue, um, ultimately, it's people making really bad choices. And so helping my children understand, let's take this good guy, bad guy off the table and look at what might have happened to that person to make them make these choices. And that can go as big as looking at, you know, a superhero bad guy. Like, gosh, I wonder what Venom's childhood was like. I mean, we've literally had that conversation. Like, I wonder if Venom got enough love as a child or if Venom was allowed to feel his feelings as a child. All the way down to so-and-so is unkind today. Huh, well, was there anything unusual at school today? Oh, yeah, we got our math test results. Oh, do you know how so-and-so did? Oh, they didn't do very well. Huh, I wonder if they were just feeling frustrated and maybe making a bad choice about how to express those feelings. So helping, again, normalize. We all do it. We're all human. Um, and creating that empathy letting go of this good guy, bad guy. So we also in our home, we don't say good girl, good boy. It's one of the things that when we go to England drives me insane is they all, everybody's good girl, good girl. To me, that inherently says, if I'm saying good girl, then it implies they could also be a bad girl as opposed to assuming that they're great and that sometimes we make bad choices. So talking about positive choices and negative choices. And then creating really that three ends for other people. So teaching them how to show up in the same way that I as their mother am, or their father, is, my husband Dave, are showing up for them. So a really great example is um, when my kids were in preschool, my son was – he had just turned four or five. I think he had just turned five. And he was in preschool and he came home one day and he said, uh, oh, mommy, um, so-and-so's grandmother died. And I said, oh, that's really sad. That's too bad. And he said, yeah, she was really sad about it. So I validated her. And I said, oh, you did? Tell me about that. And he said, yeah. I went up to her and I said, I'm really sorry about your grandmother. I know how that feels. My grandmother died too. And then I asked her um, if there were any stories that she wanted to share about her grandmother with me because I was happy to listen. And then I gave her a hug. And he was five. That's really beautiful. It's amazing, right? But that's really encouraging them to use the three ends because that's what he did. The first thing he did was acknowledge that her grandmother died and that that must have been really hard. And then he normalized it by sharing his own experience. And then he nurtured her by saying, are there any stories you want to share, right, to help her process her feelings? And then he gave her a hug. So if children are getting this modeled for them and then encouraged to use those same skills for other people, they develop really good, healthy interpersonal relationships. And when I look back on that, I think, like, this little girl, in whatever way, got something that day that she needed 
from a five-year-old, which is amazing. So she may never remember the incident. She may never remember him, but she'll probably always carry somewhere that experience. So, I mean, that is really... um, the it's mini version. Yeah, version. I mean, if there's but so where can much. People go if they want to learn more. Besides, I mean, we have essentially half an hour together, and it's just a little nugget or kind of this 10,000 foot view. But yeah, how I mean, first of all, I think we will cover this again in season oh, I'm two. Sure. There's so much on it. But my favorite, favorite uh, book and, and really just researcher on this is John Gottman, who's actually local here to Seattle. He is so cool. I just love him. And he has a wonderful book called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. Now, what I will say about this book is that. He gives examples that sometimes don't actually happen. What happens to you is going to look a little different. And it's really learning a whole new language of how you communicate with your kids. So just have grace with yourself. Be patient. You're not going to learn this language overnight. Um, But he really dives into the benefits of emotional intelligence and how to foster it in your kids. And it's certainly what I based a a lot of my initial parenting on was was that book. Well, thank you. It's been super helpful. And actually, our closing quote today is from the Gottman Institute from someone from there. So that's very perfect that you mentioned that. And I know I've even learned some things, even knowing you as long as I've had, I've still heard some new things today. So hopefully it was really helpful for our listeners too. Yeah. So let's finish with a quote. The quote is by L.R. Nost. When little people are overwhelmed by big emotions, it's our job to share our calm, not join their chaos. So we hope that you found today's discussion on emotional it wasn't a discussion today's sermon from kira on emotional intelligence (laughs) but it was wonderful (laughs) yes on emotional intelligence and um, as always for more information you can visit uh, raisingadultspodcast.com or our bigger brand futurefocusparenting.com if you like what you hear today please give us a five-star rating reviews really are the key to a successful podcast and so for us to bring you more of it we need those positive reviews Raising Adults was produced by Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer and is recorded in my laundry room. Music by the Seattle band Hanalee. Thanks for listening. <laughs>